Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, with a look at the 1984 inaugural MTV Awards and some extended focus on Cyndi Lauper, Madonna's second album Like a Virgin, Tina Turner's improbable rise to superstardom, and ZZ Top's mastery of the medium. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say 80s roll. That's right, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, welcoming back Ed Legg to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. And this week, the chapter is set at Radio City Music Hall, New York City, September 1984, and the St. Tropez Music Video Festival. And this is the first MTV Awards. That's right, this chapter we're talking about MTV, which was a big, big thing in 1984. Ed... MTV. Yes, MTV. What, what was your first exposure to MTV? That's a great question. And, you know, it's this is it. This one feels like the, a pivotal chapter um, in this book. And, you know, I, this was the chapter also where the, the one in this one and the previous one where I just was like, how many phenomena were there this year? This this particular how many rock and roll, you know, music, pop phenomena were there? 
and, you know, leading in. And we're, that's, you know, kind of why we're having this chat. But to make a long story short, I got MTV right after the, the, the these, these awards. I got I broke down and not broke down. But, I mean, in those days, you they were still doing the I Want My MTV um, ad campaign, which I can talk about later. But um, but I did finally get it, and it, it did change my life, and we'll talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was still desperately dying for MTV. Borger didn't get MTV until after Moscow. We got a McDonald's and MTV after Moscow did. <clears throat> so we're Holy a little bit – Holy shit. I know. I had to go to college to get MTV. I didn't have a TV until my third year of college. So, Amen, but, brother. I, but, that is That is killer. Yeah, but rest assured, I spent many, many long hours in my rocking chair with my bong in front of the MTV uh, with my college <laughs> roommates once Once I had the chance. But yeah. so I missed this era of MTV. I was all about Friday night videos and, and all the other stuff. I yeah. believe we even had Ted Turner's brief music video network, yeah, which yeah, I, I remember. only lasted a couple months. And, and we'll talk about that this in a bit. But this is a period where MTV has suddenly gone from kind of an idea that people were taking a flyer on into a really powerful business. Like they're going to make a hundred million dollars on advertising in 1985, I think. Um, and they also in this period, um, are cutting deals with record labels. They cut exclusive deals with CBS, RCA, MCA, and Geffen to have exclusives on video clips, which made it very hard for anybody else to launch a competitor to MDV. That didn't stop people from trying. Like <clears throat> I said, Ted Turner launched the MVN, the music video network, was aiming it for late October, was going to um, base it on night tracks, which we did have. I think that was on USA Today on Friday yeah. nights, Friday and Saturday nights. Okay. That was you know, what we had, and we would tape that and, and then play the tapes all week back. Um, mm -hmm. So we had the wall-to-wall -wall video aspect of it down. We just didn't have much variety in what videos we were seeing. Right. <laughs> but I was just, I was just as desperate. I was absolutely just as desperate as you described until the, this, this moment that we're talking about, because I, I actually, I, I get in a mood when I think of the Turner ones. Because I did start watching those, especially my parents. They didn't have MTV either in Atlanta, in Atlanta at that point. And I I mean, I had just gotten this one, as I, I said before, 82 for about nine months because we happened to have it at my job in Alabama. Go ahead. Yep. Sorry. Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, one thing that <clears throat> Matos reminds us of is that in 1984, only 41% of American homes had cable. So cable is going to be this growth industry all the way into yeah. the early 90s. And, and it, yeah. it, you know, it doesn't become a mature industry until the mid to late 90s. And so in this period of time, it's very much on a growth curve and people want it. I mean, people, a lot of people didn't have it and a lot of people wanted it. And, and you know, that they, they had a whole bunch of imitators on, on not just attempted networks like Turner's network. I thought it was interesting yeah. that Turner, Turner's network flamed out so fast and that he got busted yeah. overstating his number of subscribers. And, and, um, you know, that pretty much kiboshed his channel and, you know, so MTV had to build their own competition with VH1, which, you know, <laughs> later on in the nineties, VH1 is going to have its place because of the behind the music series and so forth. But yeah, my impression of VH1, at least in the early period, was that it didn't have that clear of an identity, that it was kind of designed to be a somewhat less hip MTV, uh, which yeah. is a w weird thing to do if you're a programmer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make another channel that's 
not quite as good as my first channel. And, you know, like it seems like you need somebody who believes in the second channel to be its own thing rather than <laughs> <clears throat> I'm going to make a watered down, you know, like we're going to have my beer and then a light beer just by pouring water in the other beer. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. Or new Coke, new Coke. It, We've got the three legs in the stool of doom. <laughs> yeah new coke was was a weird thing and it was uh, new yeah. coke was the next year wasn't it yes it was and i i was in very briefly new york city for the first time ever and that was where i had it and i felt so hip and i'm from atlanta <laughs> so you know it was but the i just felt just like it. the hippest yes yes and i mean i just felt some sort of victory because <laughs> at age 24 i was having a new coke <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird thing when Coke decided to change their yeah. formula, and and it, it oh my ended God. disastrously badly. I mean, just a, a legendarily bad business idea. <clears throat> but on better <laughs> business ideas, they had the the Miami Vice show, which came out and and was a primetime TV show on broadcast television that was designed like an MTV show. It was wall to wall action scenes with rock music backing which now seems like nothing but keep in mind that up until miami vice that shows like the rockford files would be like orchestrated like they would have uh uh you know it was like henry mancini i mean obviously a sub sub henry a tv version of henry mancini writing soundtracks for the rockford files or something like nfl films i mean they would have you know you would hear piccolos and trombones and stuff and <laughs> in, in, in these things yeah. and they were cool you know we dug it but then once we had a show that just brought you pure rock and roll and it wasn't like it was the greatest rock and roll or anything it was the rolling stones and phil collins and stuff like that yeah. um but it was it was uh very timely and it was portraying the drug trade in miami at a time when the drug trade in miami was so out of control it was about to finance the building of the skyline in miami i mean yeah that whole town is built on cocaine and this was the period when the cocaine was being smuggled in because um this is before the smuggling goes through mexico all the smuggling i mean if you're in colombia and you want to get cocaine to america the Caribbean is the obvious path. And it was only when the U.S. Coast Guard and, and DEA and U.S. Navy shut that down later on in the 80s that the that the Coke paths took, you know, that they moved over to Mexico and started taking the smugglers routes through Mexico. And when doing so, had to hand over most of the business to the Mexican cartels. So, um, you know, big doings all over the place. But in the 80s, the Colombians controlled the distribution of cocaine in the States, and Miami Vice was chronicling that. And then the next sort of video crossover that he weaves in, and he does such a masterful job of weaving all these narratives in here. Um, but let's go ahead and hear our first song, and then we'll talk about about the sex subject, because Cindy Lauper and the WWE is about to be our topic. So let's hear Cindy Lauper's She Bob. Do I want to go out with a lion 
And that was Shebop by Cindy Lauper, one of the songs, uh, along with Darling Nikki, off Princess Purple Rain, that's about to kick off Tipper Gore into, you know, apoplexy and uh, trigger the creation of the Parents Musical Resource Council. It's going to get labels put on all uh, music CDs and cassettes and albums. But uh, they're not there yet. Cindy's just pushing the envelope a little bit. And, and Matos weaves in the whole story of Cindy Lauper's alliance with WWF wrestling. This is before it was the WWE. It, it loses yeah. the trademark yeah. suit with the World Wildlife Fund in a couple of years and has to change the name to the WWE. Because for years it had been the WWWF, the World Wide Wrestling Federation, which was just headquartered out of New York. And we could only get that stuff on Saturday nights, like around 11 in my ta- in my cable package. Um, and and uh, the uh, NWA on TBS came on Saturday yeah. afternoons, and that was the main yeah. stuff right there. Yeah. That's where you had Ric Flair and Tommy Rich yeah. and the fabulous uh, the free the Freebirds. I can't remember. They weren't the fabulous yeah. the fabulous Freebirds. Yeah, of course. I think course. they were. I think they yeah, were. They, you know, yeah. we had, we actually that's where I probably watched my most rest most of my wrestling that you know that I would say was serious watching was my senior year in high school, which is seventy seven seventy eight, and it was when TBS was still the VHF channel 17 in Atlanta. So I, I knew about NWA, you know, and of course there's a band called NWA always meant to me, you know, Ted Turner's and it was, you know, and it, Rick Flair was one of them. Harley race. I mean, it, everything. You're Roddy saying. Piper. Yes. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Well, Roddy Piper, you know, <laughs> was doing the mic with Gordon Soley and, and breaking the fourth yes. wall by fighting with wrestlers. <laughs> and I, you know, when I first saw that, I didn't realize he was also a wrestler and, and, and I didn't realize, I mean, I kind of knew it was kayfabe, but it was still exciting uh, to see them break the fourth wall and have wrestlers just come and attack the announcer <laughs> and the announcer fight back. So it was a great period for pro wrestling, but, but WWF is about to take over. Vince McMahon is about is taking over his father's business and he's got a big plan to unify all the wrestling promotions because basically there have been regional promotions like there was a big one in in Nashville with Jerry Lawler a big one in Atlanta Amarillo Texas was a big hub Dallas Texas had the Von Erich brothers a huge hub uh, Minnesota had Hulk Hogan and and you know had wow. a big hub there and and the Ganyas and so Vince McMahon goes to Minnesota recruits Hulk Hogan makes you know says i'm gonna make you the biggest star in wrestling puts on wrestle the first wrestlemania on pay-per-view and he ropes cindy lopper into his whole vision she's got this partnership with captain lou albano that he appears in multiple videos she actually shows up at madison square garden for a wrestling match and and is really tied in and so cindy lopper's massive success through this whole period uh wwe manages to tie in and get themselves all over it. So it's like a, a double cable alliance between MTV and the cable channels that carry the the WWF. And so, you know, big, big doings. And, and then we get to the business aspect of MTV, like an audience at 15 million, 1 million a week in ad revenue. Um, you know, Warner Amex offers uh, five, is offered 5.1 million shares of MTV stock in August. But 60% of that was snatched by a large group of investors due to demand. And then, um, you know, Ted Turner's trying to argue that MTV is satanic filth. <laughs> and his cable yeah. music channel is going to be a, a refuge from this. And, um, you know, but it doesn't last long at all. People apparently really want satanic filth. I know I did. Um, you Me know, too. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> 
and you just left it on 24 <laughs> seven. I mean, it was just wall to wall yeah. videos and, yeah. and kids would just, it was like phones. It was the phones of the eighties. Yeah. Kids would just stare at that TV nonstop. You'd have slumber parties and everybody would just lay around on the waterbed and watch the MTV. Um, I mean, that's what I'm told because we 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 it watch VHS tapes of Friday night videos. <laughs> we watch them live, <laughs> well, and then and then just and then watch what we just watched over and over again. Well, you know what you're what you're saying. Until you said that, when I read this, you know, read the stuff like um, Frank Beard, I think says something like that about this. That is yeah. how early MTV was. It stopped being like that, or maybe I got older and more mature, but I doubt it. Um, you know the it. But it, when the nine months that I worked at this a small newspaper and we had it, I would go go to work at, late at night. I was single. I lived by myself. I'd go in there to do some work and just turn it on, and it'd be on for hours. And it was fascinating. Yeah, it was it was very compelling. And you, there was always a video you were waiting for that that you know you maybe saw a glimpse of and, and were hoping it was going to come back on you never knew when the videos were going to drop it was it was it was very hypnotic and and compelling mm -hmm. and and they were just you know they they by this point the the i think in 81 82 83 the business was pretty precarious but by 84 they're printing mm -hmm. money and mm -hmm. um and the MTV uh, VJs, the video jockeys, are becoming big celebrities. Like Martha Quinn becomes this immensely known name, and everybody, you know, people wrote dirty songs about Martha Quinn and all kinds of stuff. I mean, she's this this yes, big celebrity. Um, <laughs> I think I think we both know what song we're thinking of too. Yes, yes, yes. It's something about Mar Martha's muffin. I think. Muffin. But, um, yes, Stop it. but. Mo Mojo, my man. Mojo Nixon, that's right, that's right, and uh, yeah, Mojo Nixon, <laughs> he was right there. We we should we. Uh, I I don't think he really merits a mention in this book, but Matos could have fit him <laughs> in with the whole Americana thing in yeah. in the indie chapter because that was kind of he was kind of on the edge between punk and and uh, the Americana you know revival and yeah and was a comedian yeah. you know like doing comic yeah. songs and was funny there for about 18 months as i recall but <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting matos talks about the backlash that this is the period when the backlash kicks in and people like joe jackson are really anti-music video and there's a lot of controversy about yeah. lip syncing we talked about that with rem i don't think the replacements had done their amazingly stupid video yet where they just put a camera in front of a speaker um right just I, i'm I think still right just uh, staggered at the stupidity of the that you know but it was their attempt to, to yeah. hold a finger up you know and oppose mtv yeah. which from my perspective in 2023 is just you know it's like it's like opposing the model t in 1911 or something you know yeah. it's like yeah. what are you trying to do like you're not going to win this yeah. fight um but you know at the time it seemed like a worthy thing and people remembered you know in this age a lot of people remember what it was like to hear songs on the radio before they'd um you know and create your own visualization to it like a band like uh air supply for example or um Super Tramp. I had no idea what Super Tramp looked like, or had any. You know, they had this album yeah. with the Statue of Liberty, or a, a, yeah. a lady doing an imitation of the Statue of Liberty, and I didn't realize they were four neckbeards from England. You know, that were really home, profoundly homely men. <laughs> and, right. And, but Me you neither. could get away. You could get away with that in the late seventies, but by the mid eighties, you had to, you know, have a look and be good looking. 
Um, uh, you know, or, or have a workaround. And we'll talk about ZZ Top and how they did a workaround mm -hmm. for MTV just brilliantly. But now we come to the VMAs and we come to Madonna. So we might as well play, um, go ahead and play our, our Madonna song. Let's hear Madonna's yeah. Holiday. And then when we come back, we'll talk about her scandalous appearance at the first Video Music Awards. was madonna's holiday one of the several singles off of her first album that initially and 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 Mata talks about this quite a bit initially she was marketed as an r&b artist they kept her picture off the sleeves it was kind of like the reverse charlie pride uh, you know when he started out in country music they, they just kept his his picture off on the sleeves and 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 wanted to get him out there and let people hear the music before they found out it was black with madonna they wanted to let people hear the music uh you know play it in the clubs play it on the r&b radio before they reveal that she's this white girl from New York. But at the by the time of the VMA, she's already had multiple video hits and she's crossing over into pop. And she initially wanted to perform with Siegfried and Roy's White Tigers, but they didn't want to have wild animals on the stage, which as the fate of Siegfried and Roy, ultimately, you know, one of those dudes got bit in the brain by a tiger live on stage. So good yeah, call in yeah. TV. Let's keep the wild animals off the stage. But yeah. um, she accidentally flashes her her undies on camera which you know he, he describes in the book people who were there in the arena thought it was like a flop and they were not impressed yeah. and and they were embarrassed for her but the way it came across on television was scandalizing and electrifying and so all these wannabe madonna fans out there all these young girls were just they were on fire for this. This was this was just the right amount of edgy. And Madonna is going to continue to walk that line for the next the next full decade, pretty much. I mean, her erotica yeah. book is kind of an overstep, I think, was kind of the first sign that yeah. she was losing her, her mojo. But all through the 80s, she yeah, basically knew just how to troll uh, the public, you yeah. know, how to, how to keep her fans excited and everybody else kind of shocked and confused. And and from there he goes into her biography. How much of of her backstory had you known before you read this? I, none, none. And I, you know what? I I'm glad you asked that question because when I reread this chapter, getting ready for to talk to you, I I was like, God. I mean, this is. I actually knew some guys, and this is really it. It means nothing, but I actually ran into some guys in Florida when I lived there, who grew up in the same town. And they didn't really, it was pretty much sounds like a classic dysfunctional, huge Catholic family. That's how her family was. But, um, the, the thing that I read about her, and this was in 2000, Vanity Fair did a music issue and they exerted a, an oral history of MTV, which I probably should read or find. I don't know if it's out there, you know, it's probably out of print, but it was from the gang that started it, MTV really revealing. And this, my Michelangelo's book, and I think I've seen it somewhere else since then. I've seen, I've read three different accounts of the, her turn uh, at this thing with the wedding gown, but the real accounts, the real fire was at the rehearsal. 
according to this one that I read in this oral history by one of the guys that was an original MTV employee, she wasn't wearing any underpants at the rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, that's a little different. Yeah, that would have been over yes. the line, I'd say. But, <laughs> but at the, but you know, at the oh rehearsal, you know, and what you're saying, and it, again, it is, it was, this is so formative, and she was, she was like, she was, that was like the stones peeing on that wall. Her, this thing, this is. Yes. So, I realized how. I mean, she, she caught me, and I mean, I, I could have a million reasons you know 24 year old white boy she she got me interested and it wasn't because of my girlfriend it wasn't <laughs> it, it was later it was material girl but but go ahead i did not know that backstory i know that's a long answer but keep going yeah but. yeah and so i knew a little <laughs> bit of it but this definitely filled in I, yeah I, I, I need to do a whole book on madonna I'll do a whole episode on her she certainly yeah. merits it but it's interesting yeah. she comes from from suburban detroit she turns down a University of Michigan scholarship and goes to New York and is one of these people. It's a lot like Patti Smith had done 10 years earlier or 15, I guess, years earlier, just moving to New York as a whole, as a penniless teen. And, you know, so Madonna's like living in the rehearsal room of her boyfriend's band. They tried to build a band around her. It was interesting to me that initially her ambitions were trying to be channeled into a rock band direction that they were trying to put a rock band around her and and you know kind of a post-punk kind of thing but while she's there hip-hop is coming into the clubs it's moving out of the bronx and 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 into the downtown clubs it's you know it's taking over harlem and brooklyn and then moving into manhattan in a big way and so she's a big part of that when fab five freddie and others you know, bring hip hop downtown. She's right there, and also she's there for the disco. You know, the the end of the disco era, and so she's creatively mixing these things. The punk, disco, and hip hop are all mingling, and she's way into salsa. Is really big in this period too. So I'm sure she was doing a lot of dancing in the Latin clubs as well, and so she's mixing these black, Latin, and white styles. And becoming, creating this persona of Madonna, you know, and that's not something you just wake up one day and you're Madonna. I mean, that's a persona that she built painstakingly over several years of, of trial and error and per perfecting her persona as a as somebody who was a face in the clubs. And, you know, if you go out to clubs a lot, which I did, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I haven't yeah. done since. But if you go out to the clubs, if you go to the same same clubs regularly, you'll start to see people that like are the cool people at the club. Now, they might be a dishwasher somewhere, but they've got the look and an outfit and they and they're able to come out to the club and, and embody the music in a way that makes other people at the club happy they're there. And so that's kind of a, a thing that's it's an ongoing with all these music scenes I've talked about, you know, back to the 1920s, the 60s in England, you had the mods and the faces and all that stuff. Yes. Madonna yeah. was one of those people who was embodying the moment in the club scene. So I'm sure she was at the Paradise Garage dancing to Larry Levin's D DJ work. And, and um, you know, she she was a dancer for Patrick Hernandez, who was a disco singer that she um, worked uh, for in 1979 she was briefly moved to paris by his management she hated it and came back to new york she's living with these guys eddie and dan gilroy who had a studio with instruments and she practiced the guitar and wanted to be a guitar player for a year mm -hmm. then tried to play drums in the band then she led her own outfit by singing and playing guitar the band was called emmy um they were trying to cop like kind of a combination of the blonde of blondie the police and the pretenders 
drummer Stephen Bray was an R&B drummer. He was a member in that, and 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 he pushed her in kind of an R&B direction. And she and he and Madonna were writing partners, and then um, she gave a DJ her demo and took it to record companies. And even though they never managed to get a band together, they managed to put a demo together, and and uh, uh, Sire Records, um, you know, signed her right up. And uh, the head of Sire Records was actually in his hospital bed when um, when when he when he signed Madonna, and so and I'm blanking on his name. What, what, Seymour Stein, of course, the great Seymour yeah. Stein. Now he was famous for signing all the punk bands like the Ramones, and yeah. he didn't sign Patti Smith, but he signed the Ramones. He signed the Dead Boys. He signed the Talking Heads. He signed Richard Hell and the Voidoids. He, he um, really kind of monopolized punk and new wave as a record label. Yeah. But Madonna's yeah. going to give Sire Records their second wind and make them one of the biggest pieces of the Warner uh, music empire. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, you know, and 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 and, and going to go go go. But but the Mo Austin, the legendary president of Warner Brothers, actually turned um, turned them down. And he tried to veto Stein's deal. And Stein actually had to cut a deal, I think, with uh, Nahushi Erdogan, the brother of Ahmed Erdogan from Atlantic Records, who was in charge of like Warner International. And he, he you know, they funneled some money around somewhere to pay f- uh, just a tiny bit of money to Madonna and put her first record out. But, uh, you know, it's a good thing that Seymour Stein was there. I'm sure somebody else would have signed Madonna, but Sire Records was just perfect for her. They, you know, they bust out the 12 inches and, uh, and, and, and market her R and B and let's take a sponsor break. When we come back, we'll, we'll keep talking about Madonna and then we'll be talking about Tina Turner. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on getting real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with factor meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. 
So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, yeah, so Matos really, really hammers this point that Madonna was marketed initially as an R&B artist. And and in in August of 84, um, Billboard does an article and they have a roundup of R&B albums with unusual chart longevity. And so they're talking about how Luther Vandross's album had had continued to produce hits much longer than albums had done previously. And this is something typical of this era where albums, because of the video era, albums start having these much longer lives. And Madonna is on the list of R&B albums that had had, you know, a, a long crossover. So just like Michael Jackson had used adult contemporary and, and rock radio to then break into pop or to just c- conquer the whole world, Madonna's crossing over to pop from R&B. She, she uses R&B as her, 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 her base platform. And that's something people totally forget. We do not think Madonna R&B even when we think about her first album. And so I think Mato's pulling us back to remember how things were seen at the time and that she's playing essentially to me, Latin freestyle, especially when, when Jelly Bean mm. Benitez is, is remixing her. She's very much, I think the leader of the mom movement that we now associate with like Lisa, Lisa and cult jam and, and freestyle mm. is yet another Latin music movement that is kind of decapitated because Madonna was the most popular exponent of that. And she moved, past the style pretty quickly i think her second album is very little um relationship to what you would call freestyle and freestyle was essentially built off electro which was the kind of hip-hop that that starts with africa bambata's planet rock and it's the kind of hip-hop that gets pushed aside by run dmc but for a while there electro is the hot thing and you're going to see it go to la and and it, you know in florida influence the two live crew and stay alive Electro has a weird life and stays underground and vibrant in the black community until the 90s when it comes back into the dance scene in a big way. But Latin folks get a hold of Electro, add vocals, especially female vocals, and boom, you've got Latin freestyle, which becomes this immensely popular style for a little while. But I think 
just like Latin rock suffered when Richie Valens died in the late 50s and they didn't have an avatar and a leader. I mean, they were still writing great songs, songs like the Hippie Hippie Shake came out of the Latin scene in L.A. in, in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, Madonna was kind of the flag bearer. But I've never seen anybody else associate her. I could be totally wrong. I'm pulling this out of my ass. I think it's Latin freestyle. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Well, did you? That might... Were you aware of Latin freestyle? And did you associate Madonna with that? No, but but you know what? You're making a good point about. And you had you had asked me on a previous if I knew about Quiet Storm. I really think that I encountered Quiet Storm in Macon, Georgia, and I think that's where I heard Madonna. Maybe. Um, hmm. This, you know, what's interesting is I bought a I bought a Stevie Wonder album around this uh, uh, when they were just starting to do box sets, and it was, um, it was it was more hits, but I really liked a certain song, um, and and there was just not enough. There was not enough. I am a you know I'm a rocker, and I I just need some muscle, and there wasn't enough muscle in it. I'm sure that if I just went back and got Talking Book and Interventions, I'd be fine. I should have just gotten those two albums. But, yeah. Um, um, the the thing about her that you know, while you're talking and I'm listening, I'm thinking, she just there was just something you know about her that was more listenable and palatable palatable to me than Michael or uh, you know there was just wasn't anything soft, really soft with her or you know mm. anything. She she never did anything like Lionel Richie, I'll tell you that. No, that's for sure. There were no wimpy ballads there. And 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 yeah. they, you know, it was all these kind of mid-tempo dance numbers. But her voice, I think the nasality of her voice gave it a certain harshness and power. Mm-hmm. And I remember yeah. and he talks about this how a lot of people pitted Cindy Lauper against Madonna in the marketplace and there was a lot of talk about, you know, mm-hmm. who likes Cindy and who who likes Madonna. And I can remember being way into Cindy Lauper from whatever the first single was that I heard. And when I heard either Borderline or Holiday on the radio, I was like, this is a fun little ditty, but this chick's never yeah. going to last. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was like, Cindy Lauper's the real deal. Cause I had that whole album and I was like, I thought, she, I Me thought too. for sure she was going to have like eight or nine hit albums through the rest of the decade. And she really didn't. And what I understand now is Cindy Lauper was way older than Madonna and it's harder wow. for an older artist to go on a long run. You know, if you first, if you get your big break oh, yeah. and get famous when you're 29 versus say 22 or 24, you're going to have a lot less in the tank and and it's yeah. easy to forget that this this is a creative process and if you're going to be creating music and creating a vision and inviting a persona you've got to have some re- creative reserves and it's very hard to produce creative work while you're busy being famous and expressing that creativity so you know in the next chapter he's going to talk about elvis costello's burnout and how somebody you know when you tour and record for like six seven years straight you know, you wring yourself out like a washcloth. And Cindy had already been touring yeah. and, and recording, and not, you know, not touring, but playing in clubs and trying to get get a career going yeah. for like a full decade by the time she broke through. Whereas Madonna had a much shorter on ramp, and so Madonna had a lot more creativity in the tank than Cindy ultimately. But there for a while, yeah, there was a lot of talk pitting the two of them against each other, and I was definitely on Team Cindy. Um, me too. Me too. And she was more of a rocker. I think that was part. Yeah. I mean, I think that's yeah. probably why I'm back thinking that way she had much more of a rocker thing going yeah yeah she definitely did and like her version of the brains money changes everything was just straight up kick-ass rock and roll and the hooters were kind of her secret weapon which is easy to forget but the hooters backed her up on that album and it's weird that they were kind of a philly 
sort of ska reggae band, which yes, is I know, isn't that really it? weird? Yes. Really it weird. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, and then they kind of they kind of got marketed as sort of an Americana-ish band, like that. Mm-hmm. They were they were kind of a precursor to me of like Hootie and the Blowfish, where they're this pop rock oh, band. God, you're- that oh, you're right. It didn't fit into the rock, the underground rock scene, even though they came out of a grassroots rock scene. I mean, they were playing the clubs, but they yeah. weren't they weren't simpatico with, say, what the Bad Brains or Black Flag was doing in any way, shape or right. form. There wasn't really yeah. a national ska underground yet, although, you know, bands like Fishbone and, um, you know, the mm-hmm. tourists and others are, are along those lines. But they're out there in Philly doing their own thing. And then they get hooked up with Cindy Lauper back her on the big hit album. But let's get back to Madonna, because we still um, need to talk a little bit more about her her ladder climbing. Like she's just one of these great um, one of these people who just puts herself out there and worked hard 24 seven was on the scene nonstop. They talk about her showing up backstage at Madison Square Garden when the Jackson's Victory Tour came and that she ends up uh, hiring their management. Like somehow she warms her way backstage when she's basically nobody. Michael Jackson's the biggest yeah. star in the universe. And and she goes, sneaks backstage or gets backstage somehow and not only hires his management, but recruits his musical drummer and the drummer from the Jackson's band, yeah. too. I mean, she's just back there right. poaching <laughs> left and right, yeah. you know. And, yeah. uh, and she she sees she sees um one of the Taylor brothers and and he said earlier in this book that he met, met her and she had no use for him. He's a rock star. He is one of the biggest rock stars on and biggest band on the planet and she already knows that she has no use for him. She's like Mick and Keith in one body. Yeah, she really is. She's just vampiring <laughs> up people she can use. Yes. <laughs> and you know, the cause is Madonna so no complaints. It's just, you know, Mick and mm-hmm. Keith were on this mission to bring the Rolling Stones to the world. And if they needed to, you know, put Brian Jones on a big pier and sacrifice him to the devil, well, that's what they're going to have to do. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he wasn't missed by it. anybody who knew him, really. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah. know, Madonna's yeah. got that same attitude where she's just like, yeah. what can you do for me? But let's go ahead yeah. and hear our next song and probably need to move off Madonna and start talking about Tina Turner okay. because here's Tina Turner's yeah. Better Be Good to Me. Yes, I'm touched by this show of emotion. Should I be fractured by your lack of devotion? And that was Tina Turner's Better Be Good to Me. I think the third hit single off of her legendary Private Dancer album. We'll come back to Tina Turner in a second. There's a couple more Madonna points I want to get out there before before we drop. One is her co-lead role in Desperately Seeking Susan, which wasn't a massive hit movie, but it was a very hip movie. And um, Madonna was cast in that movie before she was a big star, and she, but she perfectly embodies the title character. It, it's kind of about you know like a, a a young you know late twenties early thirties woman who gets a divorce and she's kind of sees this character Susan out on the streets and on the clubs and she she's fascinated with her and wants to be her and so Rosanna Arquette played the main character, but in the course of the movie Madonna becomes such a celebrity they have to have like 
riot police to keep the crowds away. And poor Patricia Arquette, like or Roseanne Arquette, Patricia's big sister. Roseanne Arquette yeah. was a big star going into this. And this was supposed to be a star vehicle for her, but Madonna completely sold the show there. And the other thing we need to talk about is that she and Nile Rodgers, the great uh, producer writer, uh, you know, famous for leading the band Chic, but also had produced David Bowie's Let's Dance and is about to go on this run of, you know, just incredible production success. And Madonna's second album is going to be one of those crown jewels in his in his run. And, you know, he they've got that second album, Material Girl, in the can, but the first album is still spinning off hits, so they have to hold it back. So she's touring and playing like a virgin yeah. all the time, but it hasn't dropped yet. It's yeah. not on the radio. It's not on record. Yeah, and, that is true. And Rogers has this quote that you – I don't think many people would say this today, but but he was able to get away with saying this back in, in the day. I don't know if he said this in the 80s, 90s, or 2000s, but – he said this looking back at Madonna and he said, you know, and he's a black guy. He says, when white artists capture the essence of black music and do it from the heart and it's right, it's bigger than anything. So when Madonna came out and she was dancing, every black artist, even the hip hoppers were standing there looking at her going, oh, my God, check this out. And now it's as common yeah. as the sun rising in the east. So, yeah, he's yeah. seen her as part of that tradition that goes back to Bing Crosby, um, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, like all these people who were students of black music and and in, internalized it and embodied it and were able to bring it to a white audience and then because racism etc once you have a white artist that's and I, I, appropriating is probably a stronger word than than i want to use but you know that that's when yeah me too really blow up uh, you know historically yeah. in the states at least in the 20th century and up to this yeah point. still true in the yeah. 80s for sure but then, then they talk about the VMAs and, you know, uh, the Cars, you might think, was the winner of the Video of the Year Award. The Cars kind of get underplayed in this book, I think. Maybe he'll come back to them yeah. later. He's, they had yeah. they were having a huge year, too. It was, I think, their mm -hmm. third album. You know, Thriller cleans up, Best Overall Performance, Best Co Choreography, Viewer's Choice Award. Van Halen gets three awards, Best Group Video, Best Stage Performance in a Video, Best Overall Performance in a Video, which was a video they made for $600. Um, and then he talks about how Diamond Dave and Eddie Van Halen are drifting further apart, that they're becoming part of the rock establishment. They're in a Frank Sinatra video together. Et cetera, et cetera. Also, Rod Stewart performs on the VMAs and um, and and actually uh, kicked ass. And it's part of a, an 80s yeah. comeback for him. He had never really recovered yeah. from the whole do you think I'm sexy disco hit that he'd had. And also, yeah. you know, in the early 70s, he had more rock credibility than almost anybody, you know, grinding yeah. it out with faces on the road and those early albums were mm -hmm. seen as these major artistic statements then he becomes you know breaks through with maggie may and stay with me and then just becomes increasingly popular and successful through the 70s yeah. and increasingly damages his reputation so by this time he's kind of having a comeback um and then he he gets um uh, you know, talks about David Bowie and 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 Bowie's kind of like he's coming off his last dance hit. He's recorded tonight. It comes out. And it's the disappointing follow up like Bowie kind of blinked like he did everything right in this amazing artistic run in the 70s capitalizes on it with, uh, you know, a sequence of albums that culminates in Let's Dance, you know, perfect cash in. I think it's a fine album for what it is, but, you know, perfectly epitomizes the pop moment in 83 does this mega tour has to crank out another album hasn't done the writing 
And so tonight is just a famously weak album. And um, mm -hmm. but let's but let's get to Tina Turner. Tina Turner also performs at the VMAs. And he points out that two weeks before the VMAs, she was performing at the McDonald's corporate party in Ottawa. And that she and she had a 14 show contract with the burger chain. I mean, she she had left Ike Turner in the in the late 70s and was rendered penniless, had to go to court, barely got to keep her performing name, um, but she did keep that, but basically gave away everything else to him. So all the you know publishing and all the stuff on all their catalog of hits, Ike got all that stuff. So she was working nine, 10 months of the year for the next seven years from 78 to 84. She's just out there working, doing cabaret acts, doing corporate entertainment, playing in Europe, you know, and, and, as she said, though, she told interviewers, I am rock and roll. This is not what I want to be doing. And um, she ends up hooking up with this Australian producer that she met in 1979 on an Olivia Newton-John TV special in Australia, this guy, Roger Davies. And he was a huge fan of her because of the legendary Phil Spector single, River Deep Mountain High, which, like I said, was a flop in America, but massive in Australia, massive in England. I mean, I, I figured out that River Deep Mountain High is as big a factor as pet sounds on the influence of the emergence of art rock in 67 England. The massive, massive importance. Wow. Yeah, like people like Procol Harum. If you listen to River Deep Mountain High a lot and Pet Sounds a lot, and then you listen to like Procol Harum or the Moody Blues or the Beatles Sergeant yeah. Pepper, you can tell that all those limeys were just totally riveted <laughs> stuff and were like, I can do that too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what they did. Go. So she's, you know, already a Hall of Famer before this point. Yeah. But then Davies and her team up, they 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 repackage her act. They they um you know, she books out some hot New York showcases. Rod Stewart brings her out on Saturday Night Live to perform Hot Legs with him. She she opens for the Rolling Stones in New Jersey. She um, has a record that comes out in 1982 that that lays the groundwork. She covers the Temptations Ball of Confusion. And just I, I went back and listened to that in a kick-ass killer version of that song. And then she gets the opportunity to do a big album. They put private dancer together actually pretty quickly and it ends up becoming one of the legendary albums of this era and like we were saying mm -hmm. last week you know she just all of a sudden was ubiquitous and beloved and 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 never left you know like yeah from 84 on tina turner's just an institution and now that she's passed we've dubbed her the queen of rock and roll and i salute yeah you know all yeah. i can do bow thoughts on tina you know, I saw her in 2009 on that or on that tour in D.C. And she um, it it was revelatory, even though I had always appreciated her. And, and certainly I was in middle school when, um, you know, when we got a load of um, now I'm gapping on the name, you know, the song they did with um, they did the big wheel keep on turning. Um, yeah. Proud Mary. Oh, Proud Mary. You know, that was such a that was so that was such an archetype. And we actually there was a room in my middle school that had a poster of her then in 73. And um, so there's that whole thing and and was so compelling. And then to go see her. And I mean, I I didn't have the thinking I have now, but she she this is like the opposite of what we're saying about madonna and mick and keith this is a good this is a she's the exception that proves the rule to me in the music business 
where she came back, she did it honest, which is why she had to go work for McDonald's for a while. She she did it on her own terms. But I, here's the number one takeaway from seeing her. I would say that she still loved Ike Turner. Um, and I don't mean in a sick way. I mean that this woman was a real person who really had recovered. And she includes I she included Ike in in the show. I mean, there was a a lot of multimedia and there were pictures of them. I mean, almost to the point it made me want to weep. And huh. after yeah, and she even said something about him that was so beautiful. I mean, she was a Buddhist and she really did it. She got the job done. And I the next day I really went in and started doing a dig on Ike. And I mean it's made me, you know, how can we deny Ike? And I don't want to you know, get into a apologia for Ike. He Turner. was he was horrible to her. What he did yeah. to her was some of the most vicious pimp techniques. Yeah. I mean, sexual brutalizing oh a woman to yes. control her mind. The techniques he Good learned job. from from pimps. Yeah, and he did that. Yeah. to me, he's this Luciferian person in that he yeah. Starts out with great talent, great potential, a good person. He basically invents rock and roll and gets it stolen from him. Like he yeah. writes Rocket 88, yeah. can't deliver yeah. the vocals, so his saxophone sings it. And the record label comes out as Jackie Brinson and I no mention of Ike yeah. Turner. And he's out of the band. Yeah. And 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 yeah. you know, and so when he got Tina, he never wanted to let her go. And originally he was like a mentor and big brother to her. And that's the yeah. bike she loves, I think. The one who taught her to yeah. perform. The one who helped create her Tina Turner persona. But then yeah. when he realized that she was going to be this star, then he started to romantically court her and married her and then used oh, sexuality to, and brutality to control her for a whole yeah. decade and a half of just yeah. viciousness while at the yeah. same time they're creating this great music together. And, and that... Yeah. I think that's what you're getting that that's what she loved. Yeah. That's what she admired. And that was what she was able to celebrate. And I really have to take my hat off to her that she was able Me to too. get past Cause she didn't take any of his bullshit. She left him. She sued him. She yeah. divorced him. She told it all in autobiography. Yeah. I mean, she's the reason yeah. we all think Ike Turner scumbag and, yeah. and rightfully so. But yeah. she's also, like you say, she was helping to remember. Let's also remember Ike's positive legacy, which was this incredible yeah. music, which was bringing yeah. me to the world. You know. Yep. Yep. And it's and just, and without, do we have Tina without him? Do no. we have rock and roll without Ike Turner? I mean, probably it, it, not. I know. And I, you know, we were talking about Ike's playing. I I I did you know I did a little video run, and was looking at something else with her playing with him. I am riveted by this guy's guitar playing and I, I mean, and, and again, yeah. And, and, you know, case closed. I mean, she, what a profound thing. I mean, it really was profound and she, you know, she just was, she was, you know, she's definitely getting older and, but it just was like, I felt like I was in the room with just with great, you know, it was like seeing Prince. The one time I saw Prince, Yeah. it was like, man, I, I am in the same room with a fucking legend, right? You know, a real, you know, a real just you're going to tell your kids about talent. it, like like that. Yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. Like my my wife, yeah. Aunt Debbie, this weekend was talking about when she saw Frank Sinatra in the 70s and just what a, yeah. you know, amazing experience that was. And she's still bragging about it, you know, 45 years later. Yeah. And and I think yeah. anybody who saw Tina Turner's in that category, you know, like you're in the presence yeah. of greatness. And by the 2000s, yeah. everybody knew it, you know, and yeah. and 
And she's one of these people who got to do victory lap after victory lap. I mean, the last yeah. 35 years of her life, it's a lot like my mom had this great 30-year retirement. And, and Tina Turner, just oh, that's great. Every, everybody just celebrated yeah. Tina Turner, you know, for the rest yeah. of her life and, and richly deserved, yeah. you know. And Ike deserved to yeah, suffer absolutely. and to be cast out. Yeah. But I think now that he's yeah, gone, he you know, we can celebrate yeah. the good thing of his legacy. But let's go ahead and hear our last song. And this is ZZ Top's Sharp Dressed Man. ZZ Top Sharp Dress Man. So MTV is really central to Tina Turner's comeback. Great series of videos. And she's just such an incredible visual performer always. I mean, great singer, but once you see her, that really brings it. And the second wave Tina, this mature Tina, is this whole new persona. And it's really weird in the sexist, racist, racist 80s that a 30-something, or maybe she's in her early 40s already, that this middle-aged yeah, black woman become as she's still sexy at this point and so powerful and commanding she's got so much confidence and presence and she's been through it i mean she has been through hell and back and everybody and everybody knew it everybody had mad respect for her and she just instantly is this avatar and it's just hit after hit after hit after hit but Let's talk about some of the other artists that like are kind of um, that that are older artists from her generation or younger, but still old for this time that that managed to use MTV to um, stay current. And ZZ Top, we've done I've done a whole episode of this with on ZZ Top with Justin Bankston, but they really you know classic '70s boogie band, stadium touring band, one of the biggest '70s rock acts, and they rebuilt themselves for the '80s by doing the same thing that the police or that yes under Trevor Rabin had done or that mid period, late period Genesis had done where they get the drum machines, they get the synthesizers, they're all up to date on the technology and they incorporate it into their music in a very organic way. Like I know a lot of the hardcore ZZ top fans like are down on eliminator, but nonetheless at the time it just, they gradually morphed into what became the eliminator band and it was just perfect for the time. And these hits were massive. And they did their MTV personas, just, you know, two guys with a beard and the third guy all like in coveralls, like these very unglamorous things. <laughs> but they became these avatars, you know, these characters that would be sort of the ghost of the video. And the video would be about some, you know, like the magic a limo you know vehicle appears the eliminator car and suddenly the chicks are interested in the dudes and there's some plucky young dude who meets a cool chick and and zz tops there pointing their fingers and smiling and laughing and kind of making it all happen and it's just just i mean dominated the culture man i mean they were just there yeah and 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 people dug them did you see them or anything around this time or what was I, you know I did. yes i did yes i did um, and I mean, it was it was a rock hit. Um, Give me all your loving was a rock hit, yep. and it it definitely you know even though I was, this is the one that really kind of came came through on the tip of the rocket, 
in the in my pre MTV, you know, kind of that, um, you know, knew about MTV, knew about videos, and I'm doing the thing like you, where I'm hitting the Friday night videos. That came through. That video, that especially the the first one, came right through and just was it made an unmistakable imprint. Yeah, it was it was undeniable, and it was also tongue in cheek. Like they got the joke, they were yes. on the joke. Yes. But, you know, yeah. and this is another one of these albums that we associate with 84 but it actually came out in 83 and it outsold every mm-hmm. other act on warner brothers at one point it was moving 100,000 <laughs> copies a week and that was in spring of 84 like just massive massive success and they were you know because of their management bill ham didn't let him do interviews yeah. they didn't they didn't sit down with johnny carson they played the tonight show but they didn't then sit down on the couch like they weren't going to ed mcmahon yeah. with anybody and so they had this real yeah. mystery about them and even yeah. being in texas like you know i've been in restaurants with billy gibbons i met billy gibbons a couple times but that was in the 2000s oh, cool. back in the 80s or 90s you did not see zz top out in public they were in limos they were backstage they were in big mansions they were they were isolated from the public and had this real real mystique and persona but let's talk about you lewis and the news real quick before we wrap because they're Good also idea. massive <laughs> and and yeah and, and they played the backup on uh, elvis costello's first album did you know that that they were called clover and no. the backing band okay on, on my name is true too, brother oh hit me hit me, hit me um Huey Lewis plays harmonica on Thin Lizzy's live album. It is the weirdest thing ever. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> no, it's, it's beyond belief because I love Thin Lizzy so much. And I yep. my, I know I, re, I mentioned my DJ. We should do a DJ. Phil Lynott episode sometime. Uh, we should. We should. Yeah. I love There's several good my, documentaries they're, on him. Yeah. They're, they're my favorite band from, I saw him open for Queen and had the best date of my life after Queen. <laughs> in junior year in high school junior year in high school and but i i spent lizzie was my jam um but i'll tell you um to huey huey uh god now i can't even remember what i was going it, to he paid Go his ahead. dues is but, the point is that yes, they were they were a bay area club band yeah been at it since yeah. the 70s worked and worked and worked you know yeah they're not critically acclaimed nobody nobody's going back screaming what a great band you know all-time great band right there but in 84 they they like had number six hit after number six hit they never like cracked yeah, they the did. very top but they were just there i want a new drug then becomes the basis for Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbuster themes. And there's multiple yeah. lawsuits back and forth, but Ray Parker clearly swiped that. And he also yeah. um, was stealing riffs from um, other songs and packed it in there into the Ghostbusters theme. And and and, and that wasn't the only song he ripped off. Mato says a whole sort of career summary of Ray Parker and how yeah. he had uh, you know, kind of built this career, and and there was frequent allegations of plagiarism dogged him throughout his whole career, but that he was, you know, signed to Arista by Clive Davis in the late seventies, and 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 broke through, and then you know. Huey Lewis was in a similar way where he, you know, worked and worked and worked and then finally gets the big album deal and delivers with this album sports yeah. that that's yeah. just, you know, yeah. one of the bigger albums. I mean, in an ordinary year, it would have been one of the biggest albums of the year. But in 1984, yeah. it was too much yeah. competition. And, you know, but it, I want a new drug in particular was a fun song. I think by the time you get to like the yeah. heart of rock and roll is still beating. We were making fun of Huey Lewis pretty hard by yeah. that point. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to tell you. I, my my Irish my Irish DJ buddy, who was also a, a post punk artist, um, hated Huey Lewis, and man, did it hurt when I told him that Huey Lewis 
plate on that Thin Lizzy album. He's Irish. <laughs> and, and he actually, one of, one of the things that really made me proud was um, that uh, I had seen Thin Lizzy and Rory Gallagher, and he hadn't. And he was, oh. I, he's, he was a little younger than me. But yeah. um, I got, I mean, I, was, I mean, I don't know. Lucky, I'd say, yeah, this is a moment of luck that I yeah. got to see those those two, I'd say, were the most revelatory opening acts I've ever seen and that I oh. wish had been. And I could go on and on about what that I think um, Eddie Van Halen cribbed um, Mr. Gallagher. Oh, yeah. I'm a worshiper. Yeah, he, so. Eddie Van Halen was definitely paying attention to Rory Gallagher. But let's wrap up Amen. with 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 this last look at Madonna. He yes, wraps sir. the cha- chapter by go. going back, uh, <laughs> ties it all neat in a bow by going back to Madonna. And he's it's just three weeks after the VMAs, uh, "Like a Virgin" drops, uh, massive massive hit, great album, enters the top ten, makes platinum after you know fifty eight weeks on the chart, and then but she's still controversial. She had the boy toy belt buckle that a lot of people tut tutted over yes. and thought it was some sort of yeah. anti feminist statement and like uh, Gina Shock of the Go-Go's told a journalist that Madonna made it hard to take female musicians seriously but I love the album anyway <laughs> and Madonna thought that was pretty funny yeah and then said I'm yes. doing it because I like it and and you know that to me is the real feminism it's like she's free to do whatever the hell she wants to do if she wants to be sexual she can be sexual if she wants to to wear a boy toy thing she can wear a boy toy thing I think right. she really carved out a lot of freedom yes she did for, for third wave feminists like the second yes, wave of feminism did. is dominant at this point which is very much a reaction to the sexual excesses of the 70s and so people like andrea yep. Gorkin and Catherine mckinnon are kind of hey let's pull back on this let's pull back on this like Catherine yep. mckinnon's codifying sexual harassment as a as a legal liability and a crime and andrew yep. Dworkin's talking about the yep. rape culture of the 70s which was yep. off the chain i'm not going to defend yes, the scumbaggery yes, that went sir. off went on in the 70s yes, and was. 80s i mean rape, date rape, rape raping raping your epidemic. wife wasn't illegal Until raping your wife was not illegal yes. yeah 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 um, supreme court well, last thing i had i was gonna say this earlier if they eliminated all the perpetrators from the rock and roll hall of fame there would be no men in the rock and roll hall of fame pretty much pretty much pretty much and it was just an open season era yeah for- yeah. But Madonna, yeah. to me, is like the avatar of third wave feminism, which which me kind too. of fuses the two. It, it, it's got the yeah. freedom and sexuality of the first wave feminists, but it also uh, has learned from the cautionary tales of the second wave. And yeah. you know, she's, she's just this avatar of freedom and coolness. And, and Matos, I think, tells her story brilliantly. And Ed, yes, for, uh, Ed Legg, this is Nate, <laughs> Nate Wilcox. We've been discussing... <laughs> Michelangelo Matos is brilliant. Can't slow down how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year. And next week, we're going to be talking about Bruce Springsteen himself, the boss. Bring it on, baby. Bring it on. (laughs) I know you're ready. (laughs) All right. Thanks. I am. (laughs) Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes R.J. Smith to discuss his new book on Chuck Berry. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.